Welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast, the nature-based show hosted by me, Jack Perks. Each week I'm joined by a guest from the world of wildlife television, art and science. We take a light-hearted look into what makes these people tick and connect with the natural world so strongly, with new episodes out every Tuesday. In today's show, I'm chatting to wildlife artist Harriet Mead. Harriet specialises in sculpting animals out of scrap metal, turning thrown-away junk into pieces of art. Her sculptures are a quirky combination of metal and her love for the subject. If you can, there's a link in the description to buymeacoffee.com and you can help the podcast by donating £3 to keep it going. If you could also leave a review, that helps the podcast out massively. Spotify, iTunes, wherever you're listening, chuck us a review. That would be much appreciated. Today, myself and Harriet talk about how she combines nature and art, the process of sculpting animal, and how long it takes. Here's our chat. Well, welcome to the podcast, Harriet. Thank you. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for a while because I first came into contact with you and someone sent me a picture of this spectacular pike, which I can see strategically placed behind you that you did. And I was just blown away by the detail of the fish and the creative flair of it. So I'm really pleased to have you on today. Thank you. Well, I've actually made two pikes. I'm not sure if that's the one you saw before or not. Oh, is it? Have you, is, yeah. that, is that you meowing or the cat? Uh, no, I'm afraid she's just turned up. <laughs> that's the first. It's amazing. These cats don't seem to mind welding. I, and I just I just think, oh, my God, will you just please go away? I'm just about to start welding and I'll set fire to you. But uh, well, we've. Yeah. Sorry, Jack. That's all right. We've had we've had dogs. We've had children. But I can well, say, my lurcher say is that's sleeping. the first. <laughs> my lurcher's sleeping in the corner. So, yeah. He might They've join in a bit. A, I've got a fire here for the winter and the, and the dogs have got a bed in the corner. So, yeah. Okay. Anyway, that's, sorry. <laughs> that's okay. It was, it's an animal podcast. I think we'll allow that. <laughs> well, the, dog's call, the dog is called Finn. So there okay. you go. And I used to have a dog called Pike. Okay. And I've got an ex-racehorse called Shark. So we can keep the, the fish things going yeah. on for ages. <laughs> that's it. Well, let's keep it. Let's keep the ball rolling. Where did this idea to combine art and nature come from then because obviously you come from a very nature background and, and an art background arguably as well so where did it come to marry the two uh well I've always known I wanted to be an artist since I was about three or four I think and uh, amazingly I have ended up being an artist but both my parents were keen naturalists my dad was an ornithologist and a writer and broadcaster Chris Mead and uh, he was a bird ringer and uh, uh, allegedly or Supposedly he handled or oversaw, saw, um, uh, I don't know, quarter of a million birds were in his lifetime. He died tragically young, only in his early 60s. But uh, I'm one of three daughters and it's pretty impossible not to be inspired by nature when both your parents' sort of lives revolve around it. My mum was a keen botanist and you just love everything. It's not just birds, it's just all those, those side of things. And as you can tell from the fact I've got a cat on my lap, we've always had lots of pets, so that's kind of how it all all sprang up really yeah so, so kind of that the, the classic everyone says it started young doesn't it but I guess it's easy to get in, get infected with that love of nature when you're when you're younger well um we were lucky enough to have um David Attenborough come and open the exhibition for the Society of Wildlife Artists on our 50th anniversary and um I was um, president I think I'd only been president a couple of years at that point but um his speech, he said that all children have a fascination with nature and what we need to do is to ensure that fascination continues into adulthood. And I, I don't know quite at what stage 
that that interest wanes, um, but it does seem to it does seem to happen. And uh, I think one of the things that's that's I feel is one of the very few positives of the pandemic is that I think a lot of people had to open their eyes to what was on their doorstep. You know, with the uh, lockdown and actually only having a tiny amount of time you were allowed to go and exercise, I think people became far more involved and observant of what was actually so close to home. And I just hope that that does continue. And the fact that, you know, just these humble creatures were noticed rather than just, you know, going rushing off to look for, um, you know, golden eagle or um, go and see the larger mammals that we have in this country. It's just that delight in, in just even just an ordinary fly that they found on a, on a plant in the garden. I think that's a great way of putting it as well, where you say, David Attenborough, saying that we've all got that love and then it just, for whatever reason, wanes a little bit as you get older. So, yeah, I agree. Definitely that lockdown has forced many of us to reconnect with things literally on our doorstep. So it's a great way of looking at it. And, and with your interest, I do think that children are naturally drawn to water. And you, uh, I mean, all my so many memories of whenever there's a there's somewhere, you know, you creep up to see what you can find, you know, little minnows or sticklebacks or or whatever and 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 by the same token uh, wildlife is drawn to to, to uh, water so it's not just looking for the invertebrates and the fish and the aquatic life the the life that that supports outside of it is is amazing and uh, i actually dug a, a pond um this summer oh good um, good for you and to my embarrassment it's not finished literally just digging oh. <laughs> the hole and it's lined and then we filled it with water and I've been too busy to do any decent planting or anything. It's literally just, it looks like an absolute building site of a pond. <laughs> and to my amazement, within a week of having dug that pond, a grey wagtail turned up. And then uh, about a month ago, I was opening the curtains in the living room and I looked across, you know, sort of seven in the morning. And would you believe it, there was a kingfisher. Now I've lived in this house, or my parents have lived in this house for 31 years. And uh, we've probably seen a kingfisher fly over a couple of times in all those, those years. So it's amazing. I mean, there's no fish in there. I think it might have been just looking for a diving beetle. But if it was going to put in something on TripAdvisor, I think I'd barely scrape one star for that pond. So I've got, <laughs> I've got to work on that and, uh, and get it so it's a proper wildlife pond. But it was just so exciting just to see it. And it just proves that water does bring animals in, you know, absolutely amazing. Yeah, no, it definitely... It definitely does. It's a great source for, for all kinds of wildlife. Uh, in terms of your, so what, what would you, are you an artist? Are you a sculptor? I mean, I guess they're not mutually exclusive. It's but the I'll, same thing. It's the same thing. <laughs> uh, so what's your, uh, I'll just make sure I know what to call you. Uh, what's your process for sculpting an animal then? Where do you start? Do you have a reference photo? Do you do it from your mind's eye? Like, how do you kind of, how do you do it? Well, I nearly always, I hope I've seen the animal. Um, not always, um, but uh but yeah, I, I just basically start drawing using the metal. So I will use some reference images, but also um, if I've managed to draw those those animals, then then that's that's useful. But actually, I start drawing in the metal because I never know what the sculpture is going to look like until it's finished. I really uh. don't because because I'm working in three dimensions. I'm working with balance. So often. I'm just starting a kind of sketchy piece of a, of a road deer. I literally only started it about half an hour before this uh, interview. And, and so that, I don't, know, I don't know how it's going to stand, where its head position is, because I'm trying to find the balance all the time. But I always start with the head. So that gives me the size of the overall sculpture and the proportion. 
So, um, so yeah, the, with, with this, I've got the very beginnings of a roe deer head, which is only about three welds, and I, it's probably not even worth showing it, but it's just, stop it, twink. Um, so, uh, yeah, sorry about that. It's my life, really. That's all right. So, um, so yeah, I'm just starting building up. Um, so even at that stage, it's quite skeletal, isn't it? Weirdly kind of mimicking skeletal yes. structure in a way. Yeah, and I, I'm a bit of a... I, I get a little bit um, evangelical about imagining the way an animal moves. Because I think if that's what, I think that's probably the nub of what I try to achieve with my sculptures is actually that moment of seeing something. So when we experience wildlife, it's not on those kind of amazing TV shows where you see all the detail and the story panning out. Very often it's just that few seconds before whatever it is, flies away, runs away, swims away. And I think what I'm trying to capture with a lot of my sculptures is that moment before they've gone, that kind of experience of, of that, the reality of that animal, that life, that, that life force of that animal, if that doesn't sound too arty. But I get kind of obsessed about the structure. And I'm sure you've seen lots of pictures of fish where someone's got two. a little bit bored of how many fins they should have and they just think, that'll do. And uh, I wouldn't ever do that. It's not part of how I would make a fish. I'd make sure that I understood that it needs the dorsal fin and the anal fin and the, everything else that, that just needs to be on that fish to make it the fish that I want it to be. And um, it's the same with anything that I make. I want to, I might emphasize, you know, hairs, ears might be longer than they should be proportionally. But I do want people to realise that the leg of that hair will bend in the correct way and, uh, you know, that th you're convinced by that, the shape of that, of that creature that I've made. Well, sometimes it gets me into a right old tricky position because I start chopping things off and reposition just that tiny bit makes all the difference. <laughs> that's what caught my eye with, well, with the pike originally when I've looked at some of the other work that although there is a kind of, there is that artist flair to it, it is still anatomically more or less accurate which obviously sometimes artists can go completely the other way and it's all kind of all over the place which is fine it's art there's no rules but exactly. I quite like that exactly. you know but I do like that you've kind of got that we're like okay that's that's more or less how it should uh should look do exactly you I mean you, you could pick it to pieces and it, you know perhaps it needed a slightly larger tail fin or or yeah. whatever but for me it's not until you start looking at fish now you're the expert but of course I'm I'm not that much of a not really an expert on fish um, but you just realise the difference between where a trout's fins are and a perch's fins are, or, or you know, with the with the pike, dorsal is that still the dorsal fin that goes right back at the tail? I mean, it's I think not, it technically it's not, is. Yeah, but you look so. at where it is on a pike, yeah. and that's all about power, isn't it, and everything else? So it's yeah. just you're just kind of in awe of the structure of these things, and you just yeah. want to capture it. No, so, definitely. Uh, yeah. definitely. Is it is it scrap metal that you use? Is it all scrap? Yes. Oh, yeah. Wow. So. Shall we try this? <laughs> Go on then. So for, for visual listeners, uh, obviously we're recording this. So um, Harriet's just showing us all the scrap metal uh, in her workshop. Wow, that is a lot. Where where'd you get it from? Um, well, I'm not exaggerating. I've probably 3,000 pairs of pliers, probably. I don't know. <laughs> but they're all different. I mean, look at the handle of this one. Compared with, I'm going to make some noises though in the background now. The, the handle of this one, yeah, they're slightly yeah. different. This one's longer. Um, you know, it's just. So, and when you need a curve, you need the correct curve. So it can take ages. 
So what's this, just going around car boots and things or what? I don't have time to do that. No, um, (laughs) a lot of people bring me things, which is brilliant. But also about three years ago, it's becoming a bit of a problem, actually. (laughs) About three years ago, we've got a brilliant market locally to here, Swaffham Market, and they have an auction. But also there's stalls that sell, you know, the normal things. But there's some uh, a couple of guys that do house clearance and they sell nothing but tools. And so probably about three years ago, I, I hadn't been to the market for quite a while and I'd gone and suddenly I realised there was this stall there and it was like Christmas, I could not believe it. And I kept my call and I went over and I just started, I said, have you got a spare box? And they went, there you go, and gave me a box. And the next thing I know, I was li- literally just piling and piling and they were looking at me like, oh, what's going on here? Because um, I'd asked how much they were and I can't remember what they said. And I said, well, I'm not paying that, but I'll gather some up and I'll make you an offer. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> you tell them, Harriet, it. you tell them. That was it. Because, well, who else is going to buy a rusted, broken pair of scissors? Yeah. Or pliers that don't open or, you know, all this. Well, the trouble is now they just create a huge pile for me. And um, I've actually had to start saying no to shears because I have got so many edging shears. I've got a pile this high of shears. (laughs) But I keep thinking, yes, but I need them. I need them. But I had to have a little bit of a word with myself because I thought, it just back off a little bit you know it's it's almost like I can't allow it to go because it's going how long are these these all these things going to still be out there um and you know I'm 50 just turned 52 and I'd like to keep making sculptures until I can't stand up anymore and you start thinking oh I just don't want to let them go I want to sort of give them a home and (laughs) and see what I can do so this is not my main area I've got a huge amount um out in a in a a sort of open fronted garage that I make the big big sculptures in and luckily I haven't had a big sculpture to make for a couple of years because in all honesty at the moment I don't think I could because there's no room (laughs) it's boxes of things so uh, but it's great it's great fun and using tools um it's it started off because of course I was using welded metal and so you need to find metal so I was using sheet steel and stuff and then using found objects on it um, but in the end, I just loved using these tools uh, that had a past history in the piece of work. And I like to think that my sculptures, when you first see them, instead of thinking it's made of tools, you look at it and think it's a, you know, a crab yeah. or whatever. And then you realise it's got a, a padlock in the back and it's got um, uh, pliers for pincers and everything else. And that's important because there are quite a few artists out there that do use um, found objects. And I think sometimes they're a little bit short of the mark, you know, they're much more comical and there's a laziness to the way that they've used those tools. So you're looking originally, what's that? Oh, hang on, it's got bits of this. Well, and then you suddenly realise it's supposed to be a pig or whatever. Yeah. So um, I like to think that mine are um, slightly different to that. But I absolutely love it. I, I love it. No, I think I think you've definitely hit the nail on the mark with that. You don't realise necessarily like that crab when I first saw it. You've yeah, pretty much perfectly described that. I didn't realise it was made of padlock, so that that makes sense. I know it must vary, but how long can a piece take? And I know you know smaller ones presumably going to be quicker than bigger ones. But say something like one of your deer sculptures, for example, how long does that take you to make? Oh, what a little one or a big one? I mean, a life-size horse takes three months. Oh, really? And then yeah. I thought it'd be longer than that. So, but I guess is is that you toiling away constantly, or are you kind of doing bits? Yeah, okay. 
yeah, I, I rarely have more than one sculpture on the go at a time. No, so, that makes um, sense. So, yeah, and uh, and often uh, the big public art pieces um, inevitably end up with stupidly short deadlines. Yeah, so, I can imagine. So you, usually you're just in a mad panic um, to try and get it done. Of course, I'm by myself. I don't have anyone as an assistant or anything. So the bigger pieces are, are actually really quite physically quite hard work. Yeah. Um, but you yeah. just build them up on on in one place. So I'd... I'd make the head first, then I'd make the legs, um, and then I'd move out to this open-fronted garage, and then I'd just start kind of um, spacing out where they need to be, um, you know, propping them up, and uh, just starting to sort of build it all together. So, um, you know, what's so amazing about sculpture, but actually is one of the most difficult things, I think, is that um, uh, because you're working in three dimensions, um, you can't control the view the viewer's got, whereas if you're a painter, or you know, 2D artist, you know, drawing or printmaking or whatever. Um, you can totally control the view of your. No, there are no. always views of them that that uh, you know everyone people can look at them from all sorts of angles. So you ha have to actually. It might look great from one side, but the constant decisions that you have to make to ensure that it looks as good as you can get it in 360 degrees. Yeah, um, it's it's quite a tough one. And the other thing, of course, that we've got to deal with. Oh, the cat's back. Uh, <laughs> the other thing we've got to deal with is um, making um, making them stable without necessarily using some kind of cheesy base. Um, you'll notice most of my sculptures don't have bases on them because I like to just keep, get the balance um, of it by using uh, by using gravity and using. I suppose engineering, I mean, it's instinctive engineering, of course, you know, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call myself an engineer, but it's physics, isn't it? So, yeah. you know, um, I'll just show you if I can get the cat off my lap. Yeah, yeah, um, fling the cat out, yeah. This is a swallow. And you oh, can see wow. there's some swifts behind me. Yeah. But if you look at the way that the sickle hits the base, yeah. it has to be just there because the bird's there and it's nicely balanced, you see. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but also, isn't this amazing? Isn't this amazing that I can make a sculpture and it's welded in that little point there, and that's fine. I mean, it helps that gravity is pushing it down. Um, but you can do that in uh, bronze because bronze no. doesn't have the tensile strength of steel. No. Um, and uh, you certainly couldn't carve that in stone or or wood. So um, that's why I love steel. Yeah. And I'm a construction person, not a carver. So uh, I I. I build it rather than uh, take it away. So do you ever get to make things that you want to make or is it all commission based? I've got a huge number of commissions, which is really flattering, but sometimes it's a bit exhausting and there's been some poor people have wasted a long time, you know, just life takes over at times. And, uh, you know, there's, there's people that are just so patient and I completely understand if they gave up on me. Um, but uh, to be honest, I wouldn't accept a commission if I didn't think I was going to enjoy making it. So there'd be a couple of things I've turned down. If someone asked me to make their pet dog, um, it would have to be a kind of dog that I'd enjoy making. Nothing fluffy or anything really would be difficult. Um, but, um, but then I remember being asked to make a pterodactyl. Um, and I just didn't, I thought, well, I don't know enough about pterodactyls. You know, I'd have to do a lot more research. No. And I kind of thought, no, I don't fancy that. But, um, but yeah, um, I love making them. But yes, the um, exhibition that we're leading into, I mentioned uh, about 
earlier about being president of the Society of Wildlife Artists, and um, we have an exhibition in London at the Mole Galleries every year. Um, and uh, that's what we're leading into. So uh, I, that's what the swallows for, the crabs going to that. Um, and uh, this ras. Yeah, oh, um, cracking, yeah. And uh, I've got a tawny owl and a raven. I'm making this this um, this deer as well, a few other pieces. So um, the exhibition in, at, uh, yeah, it's called The Natural Eye. Um, that allows me to make whatever I want really, if you like, because, you know, it's just for the exhibition so if someone happens to fancy buying it then that's that's good but if not it doesn't matter so uh, when's the exhibition on uh the private views the 13th of october um and then it closes on uh the, the sunday after the next one i should have looked at what the dates was so it's 14th is the um thursday so it'll be seven onto that i'll listen to this <laughs> It's whatever the Sunday after that, so it's on for 10 days. Okay, so, uh, well, I can always... 20-something. 20, 20 okay, I can always <laughs> check a link in the description, because I think this will be out before that, so people who listen and might want to check that out could potentially go it in It would there. be great. It would yeah. be great. And you can see all the work online. So if you went to the Mile Gallery's website, you can see all the work. Okay, um, I'll put a link to that in the description as well, so people can yeah. can, can have a look at that. Have you had a, a favourite piece that you've worked on? I mean, obviously, you've done so many, but has there been one where you like, I really enjoyed working on that? enjoy all of them especially if they've come out well at the end I think one of my favorites would be years ago it was kind of one of the bigger found object ones first of the found object ones that I made that that I just thought yeah this is where I'm going now uh, and that was a vulture um, so that would have been oh I don't know a dozen years ago probably and uh, I just really liked it um, I just I like the more unusual creatures I suppose you know it's like I made a pike rather than a than a salmon you know it's that yeah. kind of yeah yeah no, I'm um, with you there. although a salmon there's a there's a you know I don't think fish are a good example actually what I mean I think I'd be more likely to make a hyena than I would to make a lion that's probably the best way of putting it yeah and yeah. so for me the vulture there was something really they're just amazing amazing looking birds anyway and all that scrap metal just worked really really well another piece I was really proud of was um I was involved with um the SWLA had a collaborative project with the British Trust for Ornithology um, called Flight Lines, um, which culminated in a book. Um, and it was looking at the story of our summer um, uh, migrants, you know, that come here to breed and looking at where they'd come from, which is, you know, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and uh, the BTO actually um, sent um, four of our artists to Senegal to have a look at some of the sites and, and to create work um, talking about uh, the wintering uh, grounds of some of our species and it's you know we all know swallows go south for the for the winter don't we but when you've got paintings of you know birds that we're used to seeing in this country in the summer perched in an acacia tree with a monitor lizard and some uh, warthog it really brings it into um, a kind of sharp perspective as to what these birds experience in their lifetimes um, anyway um, a lot of the artists uh, of our artists were asked to look at the species that were here in the summer and um i specifically looked at nightjar um stone curly because we've got them i can hear them from the house they're, they're, they're breeding on the uh, on the fields out back here um but also um cuckoos because a dear friend of mine is running a, a project just down the road four miles down the road um where he's um monitoring reed warblers and of course reed warblers are one of the species um that's parasitized by cuckoos so 
a side effect of all his hard work finding all these reed warbler nests is that he finds a lot of cuckoos on this site. So I was lucky enough to go uh, with another artist friend of mine, Esther Tyson, and we went and looked at these cuckoo chicks that you know, uh, Dave, um, my friend Dave Leach, who was doing all this um, work with the, the reed warblers, knew exactly when these chicks were going to hatch because, of course, he'd seen the eggs arriving in the in the nest and everything. So uh, I had extraordinary um, views of a newly hatched cuckoo with its flat back. They've got this amazing build to them, these chicks, because they need to roll the eggs or, the, or the, any young that have hatched out of the nest. Um, but we also saw uh, one that was a, a lot older, completely filling up this tiny cup of a nest. And so I made a, a piece called um, Funnel um, around that. So I actually made a cuckoo chick um, with a little um, reed warbler um, coming to, to feed it. And uh, it, the, the nest I used was a, a funnel. Um, I've got one behind me on the pike shelf, but you know, like an old metal funnel. Yeah. And it made a really good idea of what the nest would look like. And um, I really enjoyed that piece because uh, I don't often make pieces where there's a setting for the sculpture. Um, and that one, because of the nest, I used... Um, would make sense, wouldn't it? I used auger bits and things to, to give an idea of the nest. But another sculpture I made, which had a setting, uh, was a fish one. And uh, it's called Fishscape, and it was a commission. That was the first pike I made. And um, it's about 12 feet long. Um, not the pike, the whole sculpture. <laughs> and uh, I made 23 different fish. I got carried away. Um, <laughs> it was a memorial to someone that was a dear friend of the people who commissioned me. And he was a keen um, coarse fisherman. So they asked if I could make something in memorial to him and they gave me a budget and then I spent far too much time on this I mean 23 fish I made little tiny trout young trout I made some perch I made some rudd I made some roach and then I had this pike so there's this huge pike up one end and then there's all these other fish and I also made all the some weeds so I gave an idea of weed and then I welded the little fish and the pike onto the weed so they're like floating Yes, but also yeah, yeah. to give an idea of the top of the river, you know, when the weed's long enough, it then goes along the flow on the surface. Yeah. So I made sure that everything was angled and then bent to give an idea. So you knew, looking at the sculpture, you knew the depth of the river that this yeah. scene was yeah, yeah, going. Yeah. So you've got this pike hanging separate, and then you've got all of these fish, and they're all pointing the same direction apart from one, because most fish do, don't they? They hang in the water, going. I think yeah, I've seen absolutely. photos of that. Yeah, no, that's it's a great habitat piece to kind of show it all off. So, yeah, no, that's brilliant. Uh, before we go, I'll ask you one more. So what kind of influences your work then? Because obviously, you know, it's it's a bit different. There aren't many people doing what you do. What kind of, what makes you want to do it, I guess? What influences you to, to go and do <laughs> well, this? This is going to sound really, really arrogant because there aren't art. There are, I've got a huge number of artists whose work I admire, but it doesn't influence my work. Because no. I think because I use materials that have such strong personalities of their own, you know, they're, 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 these tools have past lives. These tools have their own ergonomic shape. They were there for a reason. Um, it's going to sound super cheesy again, but it's actually the, 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 the tools firstly, well, the animal first and then the tools. So that's what inspires me. It's the yeah. animals um, whatever they are, you know, whether it's an insect or a, a, a bird or a fish or whatever, and then finding the tools, giving the tools a new life in that piece. So, yeah, that does inspire me. I mean, just quickly to shoehorn this in, I was very lucky <laughs> to go up to Argyle um, back in July um, because um, 
there's a thing called Hope Spot. Have you heard of Hope Spot? It's set I up in, no. um, it's set up in the United States. I've completely forgotten the name of this lady. Um, she's a really, really revered um, uh, biologist specializing in uh, aquatic marine, I think, like almost like the Jack of, of America. Um, she's an old, much older lady now. Um, but she set up these eyes of hope spots. Um, so they're all over the world. There aren't that many that, that have happened, but it's this whole idea of um, shining a spotlight on an extraordinary, diverse marine environment. And um, this Argyle Hope Spot project is the first one that's been um, approved in the UK. So um, we went up there in, in July. There's only a handful of us artists from the Society of Wildlife Artists, and there's more that are going there this month in, in September. Um, and uh, we snorkeled every day in these amazing locks, uh, you know, sea locks. And just seeing the marine wildlife there, and there was eelgrass beds as well as um, kelp and Oh God, it was just stunning. So this was Tevalach near Loch Gilpeth. So, you know, we've got um, Dura and everything behind us. And so that's what inspired um, the rast. Yeah. Because they're yeah. everywhere. And uh, and the shore crab and things. But it was fantastic. And we tried um, drawing under underwater and, and everything. Because I'd actually won Wildlife Trust. We did an amazing um, uh, thing where they... Um, collaborated with this Society of Wildlife Artists and they paid, I think in the end it was like six or seven of us over seven or eight years. So each year they'd allocated to one artist. And I was lucky enough to be given this diving bursary. So basically I learned to dive, I think it was back in 2013. So um, I actually went diving off the North Norfolk coast at, um, at Sheringham, um, which was huge, um, <laughs> Shingle Beach. It was just hard work getting out there. But once, you know, when you're on the beach looking out, it's, you know, October, you know, really grey sea, that really uninviting. But once you're in the water and you look under the water, it's just phenomenal what, what's under there. And we don't get a chance to experience that. Most people, you do, and I have, but most people can go into a wood and get an in a feel for the wildlife in the wood. They don't need to identify it or anything, but they can just enjoy it. You don't get a chance to do that underwater, do you? You know, not everybody no, can no, no. go it's a hidden, kit and go diving. It's a hidden so world. I think it's people like you. It is a hidden world. And it's people like you. And, and uh, you know, luckily enough, I, I had a chance to do it. We need these ambassadors to get to talk about what's under there. Because until members of the public and, and individuals understand the richness of what's under there, there they're going to be less they're going to care less about what happens to it and you know of course if you're walking along a beach and there's there's rubbish on the beach or, or or nasty pollution or whatever you're going to understand that's going on but you don't quite know what's what's living yards meters from where you're you're walking um and and it's just phenomenal absolutely no. amazing no definitely it is an amazing world and it's great to see different ways of of showcasing it, whether it's photography with me or sculpting um, like you. Well, look, Harry, it's been fascinating to get an insight into your world and see a little bit about it. And I just want to say thanks for, thanks for coming on. No problem. I will get welding again now. <laughs> yeah, get to it. Get to so, it. So uh, if anyone wants to see more of my, if anyone wants to see more of my work, I mean, you, I'm sure you can find it if you just Google, but um, it's just as a visual artist, it's nice for people to understand what, you, what you're talking about if it's, if it's not available on the, you know, on the podcast but uh, yeah, no, but yeah good luck and keep keep 
pushing those fish species and understanding what's going on. It's really, really interesting. I will. I will now. Oh, you've told me to do it. I will. <laughs> like, all right. Cheers, Harry. Yeah, well, it's, it's, our, it's an important thing. It's an important thing. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. That was Harriet Mead. Amazing to hear the process that goes behind these incredible pieces of art. I'd recommend checking out our YouTube channel, Wildlife Exposed TV, as you'll be able to see some of her works of art in the video of that podcast. Now, most of the podcasts that we do, we record the video for with the interviewee, the other person, I suppose. And that means that you can get a more personable look. And sometimes, because we keep the podcast under an hour, they go on longer than that, so there might be a bit of extra material on there as well. So most of the podcasts are on there if you want to check them out. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter, at TitBearded, and the Facebook page, The Bearded Tits Podcast. Next week, I'm talking to BBC producer James Brickle, who's worked on series such as The Great Barrier Reef, Life in Cold Blood, and The Great British Year. As we chat about what it's like working with David Attenborough, the career path to being a producer, and what moments really stood out to him traveling across the globe. This has been the Bearded Tits podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I'll see you next time. Cheers.